Welcome to Strong Points, Weak Points, the Daniel Amos, Terry Scott Taylor extravaganza. My name is Samuel. And I'm Aaron. And tonight we have a super special guest, the one, the only, the living legend, the incomparable, <laughs> uh, next in line to being the next Messiah, <laughs> Terry Scott. Oh my. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. <laughs> it's a horrendous podcast <laughs> oh man so um this would be very odd if anyone wasn't familiar but since this is your first time on this podcast with us would you mind giving us a short introduction of who you are and why um we we want to interview you so bad well you probably have to tell me why you want to interview me so bad but uh Terry Scott Taylor, uh, founding member of the um, group Daniel Amos, along with some other things. I've done uh, a band called Swirling Eddies. I'm in a band called The Lost Dogs. And uh, I've been doing music for several decades now. And uh, that's why we're here, to talk about some of that music. Awesome. And we are super excited tonight because um, we are going to specifically talk about the air of so much change with the horrendous disc years, which is approximately from like 77 or so to 81. If I remember correctly. Right. Exactly. Horrendous disc 1981. So let's go ahead and kick this off. Um, horrendous disc came out and you guys had come maybe not completely, but had done a pretty dramatic change in your musical styles as a band. So yeah. what were you guys listening to and what other outside influences caused you guys to take such a drastic change from a cowboy country to some pretty sweet, like kind of sixties Britpop? Yeah, well we had, you know, we, I kind of have to go back in time a little bit but prior uh, to horrendous disc with the first record, um, you know, the young band uh, at the time, uh, we were part of the Calvary Chapel, Maranatha music scene in Southern California. I, I originally uh, was from Southern California, then moved up north, started the band up north, and then we all moved back to Southern California to sort of get involved with Maranatha music and that sort of thing. And, and at the time it was the, you know, it was the whole hippie culture going on. There was a lot of folk rock. There was a lot of acoustic style music and harmonies and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's where the Calvary chapel thing was. You, you had a, you had a lot of that kind of, that kind of Americana music. And, uh, we, when we formed, uh, we realized that we had a, pretty sweet uh, blend of voices as far as harmony goes. We had a guy in the band called Steve Baxter who had a, this gorgeous tenor voice. Uh, Steve just passed away this year, by the way, but um, he had a beautiful voice. And we had, we had a, a really, I think, unique blend. So, so our emphasis was on vocals and sort of emphasizing that. And so uh, acoustic style music was pretty conducive to that kind of thing. I'd also, I was a big fan of the birds. And so 
um, they were kind of birds were kind of the answer to the Beatles in America. And um, they had done a record called Sweetheart of the Rodeo and uh, a class is still considered a classic. And it was uh, sort of straight ahead, uh, sort of country, old country kind of stuff, steel guitar and banjo and stuff like that. But it was through their sort of through their filter. And I, I, I like that there was a little bit of a pop element to it, but it was definitely the birds, but they'd gone sort of uh fully into the country thing and and that um that hit at a time that influenced me and so when we put our band together we were just um you know doing these sort of three four chord simple melodies with a lot of harmonies and that's how that's how we wound up down that's what we went with when we went down to southern california and um our sort of you know, skipping over uh, everything else that happened, our sort of rise to fame among the church and especially Calvary Chapel and the surrounding areas was really rapid. Uh, we we were we auditioned to play at Calvary Chapel for a Thursday night, and they told us we want you to play on a Saturday night. It was just like playing for us. It was like playing Carnegie Hall. So um, we were we were thrown into it. Here we were with a couple thousand people watch us on a Saturday night and uh, suddenly, and, and everybody just went crazy over the band. And so it kind of locked us a little bit into the country music thing. Um, we didn't have a drummer. We were just, there were just a bass player and three guitarists and playing acoustic guitars and doing these beautiful harmonies. And, and it was uh, fun music. There was some novelty stuff to it. It had some humor. People love that. Easy listening. Your grandma could love it and the kids loved it. So it was across the board as far as, you know, the people that appreciated it. And so we went with that style. And, and, but in the back of my own mind and in my heart, I knew at some point that I really wanted to explore other influences and that and we began to do that with shotgun angel and that's why you get side two of shotgun angel which is which at the time uh was really um there had been nothing like it in christian music no one had heard anything like it before and of course it was sort of an end times thing there was a there was a real emphasis at, at the time in the church on the sort of hal Lindsay approach to the last days kind of deal and so that was the theme that we built side two around. And uh, we used a lot of, we, we did a lot of crossfading and uh, we had a lot of sort of, we uh, broke out of the country thing uh, several moments on that, on that side two. And it was sort of like, you know, ELO-ish kind of thing. Um, a lot of different movements and different, um, you know, tempo changes and things like that and it was one thematic piece and it had never been done in christian music and uh, it kind of blew everybody's minds and i think i think that's that's one of the things that needs to be considered when reviewing a record like that it may um in the individual songs uh, may seem dated or or cowboyish or whatever but historically it was a game changer in Christian music. And I think it began to sort of take an effect with a lot of musicians that uh, 
hey, it, uh, Christian music doesn't have to be this one kind of thing. It can be, it has a potential to do, to, to explore a lot of creativity and uh, widen um, the palette a little bit. And, and that was the beginning of the foray into changes for DA. And side two sort of signaled where we might go. It was kind of a hint to our, to our listeners that uh, we were going to throw some surprises at them along the way. And uh, by the time we were ready to record Horrendous Disc, we had moved on musically. We just felt like we need to shift gears and just really open this thing up and we need to do it with a bang. And that's what Horrendous Disc was. Okay, so you said that in the back of your mind after um, the first, the self-entitled album, that you knew in your heart that this wasn't something, the type of music you want to be married to forever. Was Did the band feel the same way? And um, if so, when y'all decided to make changes, how'd those conversations go? And if not, how did you bring people on board to move forward? Well, I don't know that the band itself was privy so much to my own inner thoughts. These are sort of intuitions that I had and a vision that I personally had. And I didn't sit down with the band and go, okay, uh, we're going to burn the cowboy hats and move into something else. I think that they had a lot of confidence in me as a songwriter and kind of a kind of you know, if there has to be a leader in a band, I suppose I was the leader in some sense. I wasn't lording it over anybody. It wasn't a dictatorship. And there was just a joy of making music. So I think that, I think all the guys were just very flexible and willing to go where I felt we needed to go. Um, and for me, Shock and Angel was just the logical next step from the, up from the, first record it was just opening things up a little bit more and a foreshadowing of what lie ahead and always in the back of my mind um and i've i've told this i've 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 related this before in past uh, interviews and so forth one of the most exciting things for me as a as a teenager was uh, when the beatles would um uh, release a record and they always release it around Christmas time. And, uh, that was that, that, that the getting a Beatles record at Christmas time, that's the only thing I saw under the Christmas tree. I knew that record was there and I couldn't wait for things to get wrapped up with the family. And I would take that and take whatever that record was and go in the back room and put it on. And I would be there all day listening to it. And what distinguished those guys was the fact that you didn't know where they were going to go. But I was I was all in. I was gonna I was gonna go wherever they went uh, musically. And they surprised that the advances that they made uh, from doing little pop love songs to um, re the relatively short years to something like Sgt. Pepper. Rubber Soul was the first one that really blew my mind. Um, that there was an excitement that it gave me that, that, um, that planted a seed in me that I want to excite people the same way. I want to surprise them. And if people, um, people don't get it or they want us to stick to 
you know, the old sound because it, because it, uh, you know, it's nostalgia for them and makes them feel good. Um, they may have to move on to somebody else, but our fans, the, the, the true fans, hopefully will, uh, will get on board and, and go on this adventure with us. And if they're on, if they're on board and ready to go on that adventure, then they better be ready for some, some big surprises ahead. And that aspect of it really thrilled me as an artist. Okay, so, so I get that. So, so for example, so when you 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 guys or are you know prepping or recording the Shotgun Angel album, and you present to the band the second side um, concept um, album, how did that go? Like, what was the reception? How was the process? You know, of them going along with it. Well, yeah, um, I, I, my recollection is everybody was just on board. We had a, a synchronicity as far as our relationship and our and our um, our artistry. I just I feel you know I mean I know I, I know for a fact that uh, Steve Baxter was in the band at the time when we started rehearsals for Shock and Angel. And um, he, uh, we had a few rehearsals with him, and he came to me at one point. And I think this sort of addresses what you're what you're uh, getting at, Aaron. Is that um, he he said, I don't think I can contribute anything to this. I just don't feel that that you know I can. You know, he he said, I I, I love what you're doing, and it's uh, it's it's pretty mind blowing, but he said, I just, I feel inadequate to, to really, uh, be part of it. And I, you know, I, 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 I obviously couldn't read his heart. Maybe, maybe he just felt like, wow, this is not, this is not where I want the band to go. But, uh, the way he expressed it is that he just felt like this is a direction that you guys are going and God bless you and, and good luck. But, uh, and he, as a matter of fact, he went on to move out to Colorado uh, to join a church, a Calvary Chapel out in Colorado, and he continued to do the same kind of music that he was doing with the early Daniel Amos. So he was in love with that kind of thing. Uh, the rest of the guys, uh, let's take Jerry Chamberlain, for example. I mean, he was influenced by the same people I was influenced. So I, I Jerry was enthusiastic about the whole thing. And then we'd brought in Mark Cook, and Mark loved the stuff and and ed was you know ed was solidly behind it so we were all we were all on the same page and they they all got this thing uh that 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 uh hey we're going to be experimenting we're going to be trying different stuff uh hopefully um you know we we did have to contend with the powers that be we were a calvary chapel maranatha band so um we knew the difficulties ahead uh, with shock and angel. Um, it, it may have been that any, if we'd done side two uh, and it was about anything other than in time stuff, it might've been rejected. Um, but because it was centered on revelation and that and that whole thing and chuck smith was very much into talking about bible prophecy and end time stuff it resonated 
deeply with him. And so when Chuck supported anything, then everybody supported it. So it was with horrendous disc that we kind of uh, hit a wall and maybe with, with that aspect of, of our relationship with Calvary and Maranatha and all that. And we can explore that a little bit if you guys want to. And we will. Yeah. That brings, brings us this. Go ahead, Sam. <laughs> yeah. That actually brings us to the next question. Um, it's interesting to note that when you went to Horrendous Disc, you not only changed record labels, um, which I'm kind of curious to hear how that worked with uh, you moving over to Larry Norman's Solid Rock Records, but also um, only nine tracks ended up on that disc. And we'll get into some of those nine tracks in a minute. But there's like... 40 songs or so in the back catalog that have been released on the deluxe edition and throughout the years. And there was like a whole entire, another album about cults that never got released. And how the heck did you guys have this huge creative boom all in the course of like a year or two where you just made so much music and a lot of it is so good. And then you're like, well, I guess only these nine songs will go on the disc. So I guess I have yeah. two questions there. I'm not certain why. I think we're one thing was we were emboldened um, by the fact that we were a popular band and uh, we were sort of, um, uh, I think, um, less intimidated by um, uh by our surroundings in terms of we we're more comfortable, you know, when you're first involved, when we first got involved with, uh, with Calvary Chapel and with Maranatha music, there were a lot of, um, you know, bands there that were, that were, you know, the Calvary Chapel crowd just loved. And, uh, you know, you had love song, you had the way you had mustard seed faith. And these people were sort of like, in some sense, big brothers to us. And we're, we're the new kids on the block. So we're a little bit intimidated and we're trying to be people pleasers. And, um, and we had this, um, you know, had this incredible, uh, following in a very, very, very short time. And it was a whirlwind. And, and so once we did shock an angel did something that no one had done before, I think all of that went into um, sort of fueling the fire of creativity. How can we go further, uh, creatively speaking, than we've gone with Shock and Angel? Because it was, to me, a very, you know, highly creative record. So horrendous disc. Uh, I, th I think, I think, just mentally for me, me, it just uh, with Shock and Angel. I think you just that ex, that opened up uh, creative possibilities, and that and when that happens, when you feel that you creatively have no limitations, um, then you're bound to have a pretty incredibly uh, rich creative period of time, and um, and and that's uh, that that's what horrendous disc came out of now i don't know why nine songs i don't i honestly don't remember why we didn't do more than that 
I, I have, I really have no idea. Maybe we felt like, wow, we're making, we're taking a big step and, uh, we don't want to get, uh, too far afield here. Let's rein it in, just concentrate, make these nine the very best that we can make them. And maybe that was behind the, the, the idea of doing it, but, uh, do doing only nine songs. I don't, I don't really remember. Have any artists, um, come to you and said, you know, that second side of shotgun angel, man, that was a game changer for us. And if so, who? Um, well, yeah, there were, there were, there were people, um, there was a, there was a general, um, sense from the musicians, at least in, there at Calvary Chapel that this that this was something uh unique and uh and I think that um I think that what it made what it made a lot of musicians around us do is um is sort of uh it it set a new bar for people so um and and I'm not I'm not saying every one of them thought it was fantastic, but the general sense was, was that it was uh, it was quite an achievement. And um, and we also had those who told us that uh, uh, an interesting story was uh, we had Jonathan David Brown was our was our producer for Shock and Angel. He had um, uh, he had worked a little bit with al perkins on the first record and he was the engineer al al was the producer and we were so impressed with uh with jonathan uh that we asked him to produce shock and angel and the whole time that we were doing the record he was very enthusiastic had wonderful input and suggestions and uh, he was the man for the job and after we'd done it and after all the accolades and after it was released and I think the local uh, radio station there played all of side two on the radio, which was pretty amazing at the time for somebody to do that. Um, he and I were sitting outside the studio one day. He goes, he turns to me, he goes, okay, Terry, now that you've gotten that uh, shot with shock and angel, you've gotten that out of your system. I'd really advise you that you go back to your roots. And I went, well, wow. wow, what, what does that mean? Well, you, I think you need to get back to your country stuff. So, so not everyone, uh, even our own producer thought, okay, you've kind of had your, you know, you've laughed and played. Now let's get serious and, and get back to what you do best or whatever. So not all of it was positive, but I, I, I by and large, um, people love the record. It was probably our, probably our best selling record of every, of every, any record that we've ever done. And, um, people received it, um, uh, with joy. So I'm, 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 I'm proud of it in that respect. And I'm, I'm, I also think it was a pivotal moment for us to move into uh, to other things. And Horrendous Disc uh, began uh, as a record for Maranatha Music. And uh, 
I, I'm guessing that uh, during the course recording it, because we did record it at a place called Whitefield Studios in Co- Costa Mesa, which was owned by Calvary Chapel. And um, I think my guess is that word was getting back to Chuck Smith that what we were doing was um, um, suspect in terms of whether it was um, in keeping with what everyone thought was a sort of Daniel Amos tradition. Um, and I think word was probably getting back to him that um, that we were sort of veering off the, the beaten path and that perhaps it was a record that uh, they weren't going to receive with open arms. And it was also about that same time that because some because a lot of these bands, the members, including yours truly, uh, now had a wife and children, I was beginning to think about financial situations and how I was I was going to survive. And uh, there were a lot of guys that were in bands that were uh, thinking the same thing. And of course, uh, we didn't know much about finances. We still, there was a sort of holdover from the, the idea that God was guiding, God would provide, and you could kind of let that go and just go with the flow. And you didn't really need to think about stuff like publishing and, uh, all of those aspects, the business side of it. And meanwhile, the people that worked at Maranatha Music knew, certainly knew about publishing because they were making all their money off of the publishing and they were buying, they were, they were buying houses and going on vacations and we were struggling and, uh, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that goes along with that. And, uh, and so there were, the musicians were beginning to get a little, uh, pissed off about it, a little bit uh, uh, worried about the future. And they were bringing that to some of the musician meetings that we would have at Calvary Chapel. And I think that's when Maranatha Music thought, and the culture was changing, music was changing. So it wasn't the folky laid back deal anymore. So I think they started thinking, maybe we don't want to work with bands anymore. And that's where we found ourselves with Horrendous Disc. Um, they came to us, it was amicable, but they said, listen, we love you guys, but we're shifting gears at Maranatha music. We're going to start doing worship type style records and kids records and things like that. We're going to kind of phase out the group deal. So we'd be willing to help you shop for a new deal somewhere else. And that was in the middle of recording horrendous disc. So that um, that changed everything. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'm gonna bite my tongue. I'm gonna bite my tongue on that. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> okay, I, I got you. <laughs> I'm just gonna ask the cult album that was formulated during this time. Is it ever gonna come out? Well, listen. We, we started. Uh, you know, part part of what happens when you're a young guy. And you've got fans and it's, it's a subculture stardom kind of thing. Uh, 
that's going on. So you go, you go out to the mall or you go to a restaurant locally or whatever, and you see people, you know, staring at you or coming over to your table and talking to you and stuff. So you've got this, this little stardom thing going on. And so you kind of, you know, the ego gets inflated and you, <clears throat> you have to sort of, uh, able to step back from that and go, Hey, you know, humble yourself here a little bit, but it's, it's tough. You're, you, you know, you're young and, and it's a good feeling that people recognize you where, wherever you go and they love your music and it's, it's all good. And you're in Southern California, sunny Southern California, surfing sand and, you know, everything's wonderful and Jesus is coming back, you know, this year or whatever. And, uh, you got the good life and then you go to heaven and it's all beautiful and it's all laid out for you. <clears throat> and I think, I think the cult thing kind of came out of, you know, Chuck Smith, that there was a, Chuck Smith would talk about cults. Um, there was a, there was a popular book at the time called kingdom of the cults. Uh, everybody was reading how to witness to Jehovah's witnesses and, you know, um, the, and, 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 uh, to other, uh, what were considered cults. And so we got kind of caught up in that and we wrote some fairly, uh, derogatory, uh, you know, sort of making fun of the beliefs of some of these people. It was, um, and I think the further we got into it, the more uncomfortable, at least I became about it. I thought that this isn't, this isn't reaching out in love to people. This is mocking their, uh, their beliefs and, uh, nothing wrong with, you know, having dialogue with somebody and, and, and taught who, who's of that persuasion and, and, and lovingly sharing, you know, your point of view, your worldview or whatever with them. But it's another thing to just, you know, write these songs and record songs about Mormons or whatever that's that's mocking them. And so I, I think part of abandoning that project was just a sense that um, we are we're being unnecessarily uh, critical of individuals, especially. And, uh, and I, and I think that's kind of why we withdrew from that idea. I'm personally, and that's really, yeah, <laughs> I, I really love that. Um, that is probably, I mean, I don't, I can't speak to you guys then cause I wasn't alive then, but that sounds like wisdom beyond, you know, a young 20 something's years because I grew up, hearing Christian music of they anything that wasn't in their little Christian bubble was mocked and derided rather yeah, it was than a popular, it was dialogue. a popular <laughs> it was a popular thing to do. It and it was is. and it was it was put under the yeah it probably still is but it, it was put under the heading of boldness. And and um yeah it just it, it just was not something that I that my heart was into um after a while. I just looked at it and I'd heard from people I'd, I'd heard you know I received a couple letters from uh, you know from fans of the band who were you know I don't know if they were Mormon or wh whatever they were that were hurt that um, 
that they'd heard a couple of these songs or whatever, and they were hurt by it. And I just felt like, I don't, I, I just don't want to, I don't want to be part of that. So, uh, so it disappeared, but it's still around, I guess. People are still talking about it. Well, before Sam, you go to the next question, I just want to say something. I think that right there is why the band endures and continues because that heart right there, it's, it's not based off the, you know, turn and burn, the corporalization of Christianity, the materialism, the, the, the prosperity gospel that inundates the faith. It's about the, 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 the true heart, the, the sinew of the faith, which is love the Lord thy God with all your bodies, mighty body, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And just that sincerity of your faith in others. And, and it translates into music. I think that's why it continues on. And because, I mean, as people, we want authenticity. And that's, yeah. the, that's the authentic faith. So that's all I, I appreciate that, Aaron. And, 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 and you can, you can see the shift in, in the attitude of the band, especially with Alarma, where, uh, if you look at the inner, the, the photo on the inside of this, our sort of, uh, doppelgangers there, uh, that we're pointing to that are, that are, um, that are going into this, uh, what appears to be a church of some sort yeah and uh, what you notice first of all it's the band uh, the guys in the band sort of uh conveying their um i don't know if you'd call it righteous indignation or what you would call it at ourselves so one of the things that sometimes get lost gets lost in the some of the stuff that we've done um you know at one point i think uh, ccm magazine called us christianity's angry young men and i think people were kind of missing the point uh in some sense in terms of the stuff that came later like alarma and uh, doppelganger and fearful symmetry our critiques of the church were always critiques of our own tendencies and our, our own blindness and uh, how we could easily fall into that kind of blindness and uh, shallowness. Uh, yeah. It wasn't, we are better than you. It was, we are you. And I think we talked about that in the Lama review too. And exactly that. I never, and I never saw it as anger. I saw it as people who love the church, prophets of the church, who are in love with God, saying, pointing out the sins within themselves and others. And here I am, which on Doppelganger, and there's songs throughout where you, the, you just, the band just, and through your lyrics just lays out, here I am as a, a person, I'm trying my best, but you're right. not. <laughs> you know <laughs> so I, i'm trying can you like try like that's what, and that's how i took the alarm at the inside like yeah it was like yes we're going to church but we're aware that we're not doing all we can to help hungry people we realize that we have blind spots racially and culturally to certain groups but we're trying can you like try to and that's how yeah I took. Let's, let's all give <laughs> let's all give it a shot yeah that's we're all in this together so let's go yeah very nice. All right. So backing up a little bit, um, I'm 
super intrigued by this part because I don't know if you've heard the story or um, by my very first Daniel Amos record was indeed horrendous disc. I found it on the sales rack in a Christian bookstore when I was like 18 um, and I picked it up and inside it um, is this long uh, kind of narrative. Um, I believe it was by Larry Norman about how the record wasn't released for like four years after it was recorded. So I'm curious, what was that like for you guys to tour for four years? And it sounds like you had just kind of um, not abandoned, but kind of moved maybe away from your original fan base as it was. So you're moving to a new fan base, you're touring for four years and you have no record. What was that like? And can you tell us at all about maybe why that happened if you're at liberty to say well i i i am at liberty uh to say uh but i know that the information is out there and it's been discussed so you know so many times numerous times round and round again uh about what exactly uh was the cause of the delay of the record and uh, honestly, for me, um, it's it remains somewhat of a mystery. Um, just to give you a background, when Maranatha came to us and said, "Help, we'll help shop a, a, a deal somewhere else," and we met with several labels at the time. Um, so, uh, are you guys hearing me right now? Yes, sir. Okay. Sorry, I thought I might have lost it. Um, so we talked to several label heads, and then we got a call from Pat Boone, of all people. And he said... Uh, Pat Boone. Pat, Pat, yeah, Pat Boone. And uh, his uh, son-in-law <clears throat> at the time was Mike Curb. And Mike Curb had something called Curb Records. And they had a number of um, successful artists uh, in what you would call the secular marketplace. And so um, uh, he told us that Mike was interested in the band. And uh, so we went and saw him. And uh, he said, yeah, I'd like to, uh, you know do a record with you guys matter well he actually he was aware that we had that we had horrendous disc and that we were looking for a label and he said i'd be interested in putting it out on curb records so then you move into the you know um to all of the to the lawyer stuff and uh, contracts and that whole thing and uh uh subsequently we had uh, joined street level artist agency which was connected to solid rock um and um they had told us that they would be interested in booking the band so uh and that connection was made through alex mcdougall our second drummer and percussionist in the band and so we had discussion with the street level agency arm of solid rock records they said yeah we would like to book you guys we thought okay great we've got a booking agent we're we're most likely going to 
um, signed with Curb Records. So it looks like, you know, our, our immediate future is mapped out pretty well. Well, it wasn't long afterwards that we got a call from street level and said we need to have a meeting. And at that meeting, we were informed that Larry had a policy uh, that uh, street level could not um, book any bands or artists who weren't on the solid rock le- uh, label. And uh, it was sort of a, oh, now you change it. You're, it was okay, now it's not. Okay, so we got that straight. So we met with Larry, and Larry s- said, I know that you guys are uh, talking to Curb Records. He said, listen, um, the lawyer for Curb is the same guy that got me my early deals. And he goes, I know how the guy thinks. I know his, I know, I, I, I know how his mind works. And, uh, let me, if you're, if you're open to it, let me negotiate this record with the, the curb lawyer. We said, great, perfect. Well, uh, the next thing we know, Larry tells us that he advises us not to take the deal. And we, we asked why, and he said, because it's just a basic artist deal. He goes, they want all your publishing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't take the deal if I were you. Well, that then that sort of pushed us towards just becoming a solid rock um, band and joining that roster which we eventually did. Um, We had already recorded Horrendous Disc. Um, I'm not sure if we had, I'm I'm not sure of the timeline with the song, I Love You Number 19, but I Love You Number 19 was added onto Horrendous Disc because I had felt that it, that, we had uh, a, a number of sort of mid-tempo things and I felt like we needed something that was, uh, you know, a little more of a rocker and could possibly, you know, start the record off and sort of explode. And, uh, and we went back in and recorded that for, for horrendous disc. But, um, so we signed, uh, we signed with Solid Rock with Larry, and we were being booked by Street Level, and that's that uh, that produced the uh, uh, Amos and Randy tours with Randy Stonehill that were sort of famous, and um, and that was the start of our our kind of our new career. With after severing ties with Maranatha Music, we were now Solid Rock. We felt like. Hey, this is a label that represents the cutting edge of things. It's it's not connected uh, to a particular church, so it's not going to be like we're going to be judged by <clears throat> by clergy people. Uh, we're with uh, uh, fellow artists who have who, who have vision and uh, are musical professionals and great songwriters and so forth and so on. So we were happy to be there. Um, then Larry. Um, Larry, then his distributing arm was Word Records, 
And my guess to answer your question about why the record took three years to be released um, was, I think, a financial situation. I can't be certain of it, but I think that Word Records had put a lot of money into Horrendous Disc to get it uh, completed, mixed, and that sort of thing. And Larry was uh, saying to, this is all conjecture on my part. My thought is that Larry was saying, we need more time and we need more money to get this thing done. And, um, And at that point, Word had the option of either they pulled the plug, they would lose all the money that they had invested. So they took a chance uh, putting more money into it to finally get the thing released. And uh, I, I think that it probably was driven by fin- by some sort of financial arrangements or concerns behind the scenes. But um, that's only guesswork on my part. That's fair. And what was it like touring for three years without a record? Uh, yeah. Was that a bit yeah. awkward or... Uh, it was, it was, it was, it was, um, at times it was hellish because, uh, because as, as restless cre- creatively as I am and as I, and as, and I think I speak for the entire band, we couldn't have, we, we couldn't have continued to sort of meld into some sort of oldies band that just repeated doing shotgun angel on the first record. Uh, we had moved on obviously with horrendous disc and, um, we were even moving on from that. We were moving on from horrendous disc. Um, and we had this fan base that expected, um, stuff off the first record and stuff off shotgun angel your your album is always sort of your precursor to what you're going to do live you're able to sort of you know you're going to have some people that aren't going to like it but you might gain new fans that like the new style or whatever and then you're going to have some of the old fans that just love anything daniel amos does so we you know uh not having a record and having moved on musically was it was a it was every night that we that we would play it was it it was um, a struggle Uh, it was hard work to sort of have to explain ourselves we couldn't just get up and start doing um, these songs off horrendous disc and expect people to go, oh, that's fantastic. This is this is all new to their ears. It's like if you go, you know, you, you even have, there's, there, whenever you go see an artist that you love, there's certain songs you want to hear them play. And uh, if they get up there and they're doing their new record that you haven't heard yet, um, some people might dig it, but most, probably most people in the crowd are going, okay, that, yeah, that's fine, but let, let's hear the hits. Let's hear, let's hear the, Let's hear the stuff that I love. And so here we were way past Shotgun Angel and going out on the road. And we we had to sort of 
combine some of the older stuff into our set and then introduce new songs and say, you know, this is our current record that is, we hope will be released soon. We didn't know that it was going to be released for three years. Um, and, and, and have to kind of be apologetic about it on, on some level. And, uh, it, it excited some, uh, some people, uh, and it, um, it evoked ire in many people. We heard from many people after shows and it was, it wasn't something like, I don't really care for your, this new musical place that you're going. It was what happened to your first love kind of stuff. It was, it was mean. And, uh, and then it even got worse when it came out that there was conflict between us and solid rock and Larry and all of that thing. And then that caused controversy and people were divided on, on, uh, Larry. And, uh, he'd always been a controversial figure, but this really moved that to the spotlight and, and it became a, he said, she said situation as far as what was the problem and why wasn't the record being released. And, uh, there was some insinuations on both sides of, uh, stuff behind the scenes and it got really ugly, uh, and really nasty and, and regrettable for me. Um, and I, I, uh, you know, I I tended to react more with uh, with anger rather than grace and kindness, and to sort of let it go. And uh, uh, and so, being on the road was uh, becoming increasingly increasingly difficult. And as a matter of fact, as a result, we lost uh, two of our members. Uh, not long afterwards so it just became uh, too taxing it was a financial drain and it was a spiritual drain it was a mental drain it was a physical drain and uh, as exhilarating as it was creatively um i was pretty miserable um and we became kind of insular it was sort of us against the world kind of thing and I was so, um, I was so happy to have, uh, my friends in a band with me and we could take comfort in that and, and, uh, uh, sort of strengthen each other just by, just by being around one another and, uh, and talking this stuff out and uh, praying about it and, and at the same time creating, uh, creating music. And uh, that's what kept me alive. All right. Now that we've, we all feel the mess of what it was like to be in Daniel Amos circa mm, 79, 80, 81. <laughs> was there any like songs that y'all like from the, the um, um, horrendous this or Lamer that y'all were playing that routinely got positive praise, even though people hadn't heard them before? Well, what, well, I'll give you a really good example. Here, here's another story that you'll really appreciate. And it, it, it sort of encapsulates uh, the, um, the sort of uh, battle at the time that we were waging and the war that we had to fight. Um, we had, 
uh, we had before horrendous disc, we had been invited by Calvary Chapel of Riverside to go out to Hawaii. And um, what you would do out there would the band would play at various high schools and uh, on the different islands. And the uh, the pastors, the kind of youth guys, they would get up and uh, they would share after we would play, they would get up and share, you know, you've, you all know that term, you know, share their personal testimonies. And of course, they yeah. were they had they had come out of the they had come out of the hippie era, so they could talk about how they had they had gotten into, you know, drugs and uh, you know the whole uh, free love thing and all of it, and it was pretty powerful at the time. And uh, so when we had gone over the first time over there, and we'd gone over as a sort of acoustic, you know, easy listening type of band. Uh, they would culminate this this sort of tour of of the islands with a a main concert. Uh, I think it was on a Friday or Saturday night uh, in Oahu, and uh, and it, you, you know the idea was to invite all the high school kids out to this concert. And then they would have a massive sort of Billy Graham type evangelical altar call. And they had a hotline that you could, that they had set up and they had, uh, they bought TV time, prime time there on the islands. And it was a big deal. Well, about the time that we, the, the next time that we went over, we were doing, we had gone full blown into horrendous disc. And it was making the pastors uh, fairly uncomfortable. But we were also reading the pulse of the culture. And so we knew these kids, this was a different group of kids that we were playing for. And we were a different band. And we knew how to, um, uh, to please them in the sense that we were doing music that was current and relatable and we got tremendous receptions every we every high school that we went to kids went crazy and we were able to talk to kids afterwards a lot of kids had problems and they would come to us and we talked to them about you know some of the difficulties in life they were facing so it was really rich and genuine the problem was that the the guys that were pastoring this thing when they would get up and give their testimonies these testimonies that were powerful like in the 60s and early 70s or whatever the kids weren't resonating with any of it as a matter of fact they were bored and people would um uh, they would not pay attention they'd be talking to one another and the whole thing and so that got kind of turned back on us, like it was somehow our fault that this was going on. And um, and there there's much more to the story. It was another con- we there was a confrontation between the pastors and our band, and uh, at one point that was very um, uh, heated and uh, was not good for anybody. So that 
that's just an illustration of the kind of um, the kind of reception we were getting when we when we would tour during this time. You had younger people that didn't know much about the band that just loved what we were doing. It was exciting. It was the six piece band. So there, you know, it was, it was drum driven. It was rock and roll, um, the whole nine yards. But as far as the old school people that loved that first record, they thought, wow, this is, this is not, this is not in our wheelhouse. This is, this is outside. And, uh, there's there's something spiritual going on it's not just a matter of these guys are switching styles these guys have uh, have gotten away from christ himself and those are the kinds of things you'd be confronted with after a show if you have people come up to you and just throw up on you uh you know metaphorically speaking and i had a number of confront i had a number of confrontations we 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 in one show uh in one show we were backstage and we had, I, I, I've always been a Dodger fan. I was, I was a kid and my grandfather took me to Dodger games when I was little. So naturally I was a fan. And I think the, the, the Dodgers were in the world series at that time. And we were backstage and they had a TV back there. And I was watching the world series Dodgers play. Well, uh, they announced the band come to come out and play on stage and uh you know i missed i missed the end of the game i didn't know what happened and uh i was just kind of joking around with the with the crowd you know it was it was thousands of people there and uh, i said hey does anybody happen to know what happened with the dodgers uh in today's game and from the back of the crowd somebody yelled out what about Jesus? So, <laughs> you know, you know this, this, this is the kind of stuff. I mean, I mean, and, and I, and I think that, I think there were, I think there were a number of people there too, that had heard about our change in musical styles and were already upset about it and just had kind of come out to the show to see the, you know, see the freak show and then to come up, come up to us after the show and, uh, and tell us that they thought we had, uh, we were blowing it, that we were, that we were not in God's will. And we confronted this kind of thing, uh, often. On the other hand, we had, we gained new fans, people that just loved it. And, um, uh, so it was always a crapshoot, you know, where we went, you're bound to get cause controversy people coming up to you to your face and maybe showing off in front of their friends and and uh doing the uh the re the christian rebuke as they say and uh after a while what horrified me what horrified me is is how i was changing and how i quit being kind to those kinds of people i kind of took the attitude well sometimes people need it sometimes it's it's it might be godly to give somebody a swift kick in the ass so so when when, when somebody would I, I got to the point where someone would confront me instead of going uh well you know i'm sorry that you feel that way i i would come back at them i just got to the point where 
uh, I had lost all patience and I knew that was bad. And then spiritually, uh, it was, um, it, uh, it, 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 it was not a position that was healthy for me. Well, sometimes you got to do that. Jesus whipping bankers, you know? <laughs> yeah, I got you. And, 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 uh, yeah. And, and at times it was justified, I think. And, and I think that sometimes people were surprised that I would come back at all, expecting me to kind of sort of crawl away on my hands and knees. But so, uh, there were some very satisfying moments in that regard. People get, if you come back at them, they get a pretty wide eyed. They're not expecting it. But, uh, there were times that I think that I was, I was becoming to, I was, I was starting to turn on these people. And I think, uh, I think that wasn't, I think that wasn't a good thing. I wasn't, I wasn't loving them. And at the same time, trying to correct them. I was just trying to correct them. I was defensive. Man, I think, I think in the near future, we're going to need a uh, thousand page memoir on just all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yes. it's it's a little tough. That's it's a little tough to revisit. It's, it's, it's a little it's a little tough to revisit because I've you know it's such a it, it's part of my past and I've moved on and and I've I've made peace with all of it and and I also see it as uh, you know to some degree blessing in disguise because what. What eventually happened is that the band's popularity began to diminish. And I think I, I, I think that it got to the point where uh, we were creating, uh, there, were, there were no, um, I got to the point where, let me put it this way, got to the point where I was no longer a people pleaser. And I was, that was part of what I had to go through. I had to go through the get, get over yourself, get over the idea that you need to please everyone. You're not going to do it. It's impossible to do. You can't take these people to bed with you in your mind at night and lose sleep over it. And I had been doing that. And I finally got to the place where <clears throat> I could look more squarely on the 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 vision that i had not only as as a, as a christian but as an as an artist and that was a freeing mm. that was a that was a a freeing um evolution uh, to get to the place where you no longer have anybody telling telling you what you need to do uh you can fall you can you have the liberty to follow your vision wherever it takes you and uh, and if we sell a lot of records, we sell a lot of records. If we don't sell any records, we don't sell them. But we're going with this thing. Beautiful. I love it. So um, we've held you for a long time. So is it okay if we end talking about a song? Well, yeah, we're sure. not going to end. We're going to talk. Terry has some things he wants to talk about after we're done with our questions. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my last question off my chest. Um, I feel like it's fitting for the, uh, um, the ending track on Horrendous Discs, since that's kind of the air this is focused on. Um, yeah. It's a beautiful track. So 
what was some of the inspiration behind this title track, Horrendous Disc? Because that's a kind of bizarre title when you think about it, or at least when I think about it. And from what I can tell, it seems to be kind of about domestic abuse. So that is um, a very heavy subject to end an album on. What kind of inspired that? And tell us how we totally got that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do the backstory a little bit. Well, where you guys got it wrong. Well, uh, I think, I think with, uh, I believe it was, was it the, was it the first record or was it Shotgun Angel? You guys talked about, uh, no, I think it was the first record. You you talked about Steve Baxter's song, The Bible. Yes. In which he does a thing, he does a deal where he, uh, there's a line in there about something about Alice Cooper can just freak you. John Lennon can't save you. Yeah. yeah, Yes. Yes. And I think one of you guys said something about, oh, that probably was kind of a thing back then for Christians to, uh, I don't know what words you use, disparage, you know, pop icons or whatever. That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's okay. I mean, it's okay to say that. Uh, But, um, and and then uh, as far as horrendous disc go, uh, goes, um, there was um, the reference to uh, why do you settle for strawberry fields, right? There was a line in uh, in uh, on the line. Why do you settle for strawberry fields? So re- again, a reference to Lennon. Um, and then horrendous disc. You guys speculated on that it might be about John Lennon. So I'm kind that, of, what's that? what's that? That was me. I said the John Lennon thing. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Uh, I, I can, I can understand why. Um, and it very well could be about John Lennon, but first of all, with, with Steve's thing, you gotta realize, no, that wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing for Christian bands to name these, these, uh, pop icons at the time it wasn't it wasn't sort of some faddish thing that everybody was doing uh and i will tell you an interesting aspect of that song he he uh he sings uh what is what is the line that he sings you can't chant till the morning to make it uh is one of the lines in his songs and he's he, he, and that and obviously this was this was written during the time of the whole hippie deal going on. So the chanting thing and in various religious pursuits, he was addressing that. Well, originally, what that line was was, "You can't ball to the morning to make it." And ball was you can't have sex till the morning to make it. So it's very, very bold, <laughs> bold thing to say in a Christian song. You can't. Bold. Very yeah. yeah. It would have, uh, it would have made some people pass out. And- oh yeah. They would have, it would have been and, banned. <laughs> yeah. But, it, but, but, it, but, but in a way at that time, very powerful and bold. And so, you know, um, 
Al Perkins, our producer, said, now you're going to have to change that. So we change it to chant. Now, as far as on the as far as on the line goes with the reference to uh, Strawberry Fields, it wasn't a put down of Lennon at all. I, re- I revere as a as a as an artist and, you know, the Beatles and John Lennon, and the whole thing. <clears throat> they're, they're, you know, there's there's some of my musical heroes. There was no intent to cast aspersions on the Beatles or on John Lennon. It was simply a reference. It was it was an acknowledgement of music in general that brings us delight and joy. It doesn't matter what kind of music it, what the genre is. You, you listen to anything, and 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 as far as I'm concerned, all music uh, music is a gift, God's gift to us. And whether a particular artist recognizes uh, the source of music. Um, whether they recognize that 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 this is this is a god-given gift to the world music itself um they are still uh uh vessels through which you know music that can move us um i have i've had I've, i've had religious experiences listening to frank sinatra honestly uh, you know, you listen to Moonlight in Vermont, and it's 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 like touching heaven. So, um, so it, it wasn't an attempt to put down the Beatles or 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 to put down Strawberry Fields or whatever. It was just, it was just it was a way of saying, yeah, this is all good stuff, but it isn't all there is. Uh, there's something beyond this. There's something that can bring you. Music can bring us a temporal joy. Um, there is an eternal joy, and 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 there there is uh, there is uh, life uh, life beyond. Uh, there there is a place of joy that you can you can come to in your life. It's not necessarily a, a constant, sustained joy, but a joy that is is married to hope. That, that is beyond uh, strawberry fields or anything, anything, any earthly kind of utopian paradise. And, uh, and that's all that line was. As far as, as far as horrendous discos, I didn't have anybody in mind, uh, certainly not John Lennon when I wrote that song. Um, I, I think how the song germinated in my mind was I wanted to say something about the ability that we all possess to masquerade or disguise our our personal darkness. Um, and Terry preach. Say again. I, I said preach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know I've I've been married to my wife for fifty four years, so. It's not about me in the sense of I don't beat my wife, but um, I'm capable of hatred in my heart. I'm capable of dark, dark stuff because I'm a human being. And, um, you know, I just read the scripture today about Jesus saying the uh, John saying about Jesus. He trusts himself to no man because he knew what was in the heart of men. And um, I think that that's probably a 
that's probably a good motto for all of us. We know what's inside of ourselves and we know that we're capable of almost anything. And so I took the idea of an, the idea of an artist or, or, or a, someone who's idolized, uh, for their artistry and, uh, the idea that, or, or, or an actor or actress that you think, uh, this, you know, you, you see them on the screen you think that's who they are. Well, it's not who they are. And, uh, uh and I, and I, and I wanted to explore that, that idea of, of, um, uh, putting our makeup and, um, and presenting ourselves to the world and, uh, and, 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 and hopefully people buying into the idea that we're really, really good people. Uh, when in fact, uh, there's a dark side to all of us. And that's really what this, that's really, uh, and, and we can fool. And, and, and the further point of the song is that we can fool people, um, you know, uh, all the days of our lives. We can, we can fool people into thinking, you know, we're, we're, we, we got it together. We're cool people. But, as the song said, God sees it all, and these things will be exposed, whether it's in this life or the next. So that that was the idea behind the song. And and I will say, in your guys's um, uh, sort of elaborate praise of that particular song, I'm with you all the way. I think the two I think the two songs on Horrendous Disc for me uh, are definitely uh, Tidal Wave and Horrendous Disc. And, and, how I've of and I've and I've and I've often thought <laughs> that, if, if, and I think that I think those two songs are written probably near, like, were written late in the in in the process of writing songs for horrendous disc. So even within that time frame of writing horrendous disc, I was evolving as a songwriter. And I've often said, if I could go back, I probably would have filled that record with those types of songs, um, uh, more experimental with a lot of uh, sort of a lot of movements and tempo changes, songs within a song. Um, there was a there was a song by the Who called A Quick One While He's Away. And I forget which record it was on, but um it was that type of thing uh, that that uh, it would it had a narrative and it had all these different changes and it had a sort of vaudeville piece in it and it would go back to a was rock that thing. Pardon me. Was that Quantum Frieger album? Is that, I don't was think it was. I don't think okay. it was. But but okay. Pete Townsend took that idea from that from that particular song. It was sort of kind of early in their in their uh, uh, musical exploration and the kind of turn that into Tommy, that kind of approach, kind of a um, thematic, you know, operatic kind of deal. So <clears throat> that was the idea. So I, I, and I, and I'd love that. And uh, so i kind of brought that idea. It started, started somewhat side to a shotgun angel, but then instead of doing a whole side, that's kind of that kind of thing. We just uh, kind of shrunk it down to a single song and, uh, those two tracks to me are the most exciting and advanced on that record. Um, 
<laughs> and then <laughs> you guys, I was laughing when I was listening to this, you guys talking about Sky King. Uh, it's like, uh, I, I get it. I, I get the critique. That was just ELO, right straight down the middle. That's all that was. It was sort of like a B-side of an ELO song. And, uh, yeah, not great. <laughs> Am I hearing you guys? Well, you uh, <laughs> yes. we said, sorry, I was, I was trying yeah, we said nice things about Sky King. I, I, I like that one. Like, we said I think nice. we were a little bit hard on it, but in retrospect, I was listening to it again right before the podcast, and I was like, "Man, maybe I was too hard on the song." <laughs> I thought I said, "Well, nice no, the, no, no, no." Listen, listen, Sammy. Listen, here's the deal. Where I'll tell you, I'll tell you where you were off base. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, Please do. I'm, I'm excited to hear. Yeah. All right. I have a question for you. Are you ready? Samuel. Sorry, I'm trying to get the unmute button. Yes, yes, go ahead. All right, here's my question for you. I'd like to know which three or four songs you would take off of Alarma. Oh, remember your comment at the end of your <laughs> at the end of your review. You said, I think that this record will lose about three or four songs. I'd like to know what they are. Yeah. Oh, man, um, I got to remember what's on alarm. I'm going to be honest. I'm not as familiar with that album. Okay. So give me just give me just a moment. I will get I will answer your question because okay. I know once I see the track list, I can. OK, here we go. So I think on Alarma, um, the ones that kind of stuck out to me as eh was Big Time Big Deal. Um, and no. then I think it was, I'm trying to remember what else. Um, Shedding the Mortal Coil. Shedding the Mortal no. Coil. An endless oh, summer, the, and then the, I said "Walls, walls of, doubt, of Doubt," even though everyone else loved that song. It wasn't no. hitting me in the right spot. <laughs> no, Walls of Doubt. He said that, Out, Terry. I, why talking to Aaron, this guy? Aaron, <laughs> outrageous, right? Outrageous. <laughs> I and I think the comment. I think the comment on. I think the comment on Walls of I think the comment on Walls of Doubt was that I heard that kind of thing all the time. There was something to that effect. Yes, yes it was. The, so, it was. Um, it was the unfortunate. Go ahead. It was. It, it was what? So it was an unfortunate deal where that type of song I had grown up hearing. Um, who? But who it, in the world? Who would wait? Who in the world did that type of song? Who are you talking about? So I mean. Guys like Michael English, Bill Gaither Band, um, or oh Gaither Vocal Band. Bill you know? Gaither, Walls of Doubt, Run to Your Lover. They would speak. <laughs> Bill Gaither would sing a line like that. Maybe not those exact lines, but the type of song. Oh the, come on! That's so bad. what I what I always That's called those bad. So what I called those um, songs growing up, and I still call them to this day. And I'm not saying your song is bad because I get it where. Um, it's a it's a whole entire trope called Seinfeld is unfunny, whereas 
it's it sounds less cool to me because I grew up hearing cheap knockoffs, right? Uh, so, it's a, but it's a whole because people copied you over and over again. Okay, that's what's happening. But I would love to hear Bill Gaither trio doing Walls of Doubt. I would, <laughs> I would sell both my kids to hear that. <laughs> I would pay to see that. I'm with All you. Right. That would be good. <laughs> and then, and then, then. I don't know where the idea that shedding the mortal coil doesn't fit with the rest of the songs. How did that happen? You've got on, on, on this record, you've got big time, big deal. You have props, you have ghost of the heart, even cloak and dagger and colored by which are experimental and off the beaten track, but shedding the mortal coil shouldn't be on the record. It just never, it just never resonated with me. I don't know. It just never did. That's all right. What about you, Sam? (laughs) Um, So I'm like feeling the heat now. Um, So, in all seriousness, that all I remember about when I was listening to that is just kind of, it felt like the album just kind of came to a stop. Like I was enjoying a good story. And that album reminds me of another trope called a big-lipped alligator moment, where a movie or a story just stops and is like, well, look at this really interesting thing that has nothing to do with the rest of everything else. Moving on. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel about that song, Sam. <laughs> and on the, the, the new album, a quick one. That's the album it's on. It's driving me crazy. I was going to let it go. Um <laughs> <laughs> So Terry, what else? What other? So so this is your time. What other critiques that we've had? Do you think you agree with, disagree with, whatever? Uh, well, I I think I think the other disagreement probably is with uh, Samuel on this, and that is, uh, and honestly, none of this stuff. You got you guys got to know. I'm I'm very thick skinned, so it's it's. Yeah. We're having a good time with this. It's not. It's, yeah, we are. We are. I yeah. love this. Yeah. This. Is, no, this, you are totally good. I'm fine with it. <laughs> all right. All right. Good. Okay. So, um, I think that one of the critiques of Alarma that I didn't uh, understand was this idea. I think that you dismissed some of the songs because you felt that they were lyrically repetitious am i characterizing that yes um there were a couple songs that i said i feel like this is repeating ideas i've heard in other songs um with that said you know um even critiques are ever evolving and i think upon listening to the album once or twice more i am starting to favor more of Repetition for the sake of remembrance, as opposed to repetition because you're out of ideas. Good for you. You made the right move. Um, it, and, and, I, you know, it, to me, it was a little bit. It, it's a little bit like saying, uh, I don't know. Take some guy like um, I don't know Andy Williams or something. It'd be like saying, "Oh, is he singing about love again?" You know, here's a collection of love songs. It'd be, it would be like, to me, it would be like saying, oh, he keeps talking about love over and over again. Doesn't he? Why is he doing that? 
I mean, the, 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 the thematically there, yeah, you're going to, you're going to echo or revisit, uh, certain themes when you're doing a thematic kind of record where they're where these uh, are are sort of leaning on each other and and sort of interdependent so you are going to um in a sense repeat ideas but you're not going to you're not going to uh lyrically just write the same lines over again you're going to come at it at a different angle give a different viewpoint from from a different perspective and yeah you are going to keep going back to um quote unquote the central theme but uh, mm. but you i i, I just think I, I just think that's that's kind of missing I don't think you can expect that um, you're just going to uh, uh, have um, completely new thoughts, new ideas on every song that you do, especially when you're trying to sort of um, uh, make a cohesive whole. Uh, and, and, and so I, I think you kind of miss that one. Yeah. And I would say with Sam, like he said too, like, so this per- past week too, I've been listening to Shotgun Angel more, and the songs are picking up. Like even the the Rapture songs, um, End Times ones are. I'm like liking more fav- favorably, um, because as a person you grow and you mature. And even though I'm agnostic, like just the themes and like the concepts of that are still mm-hmm. just applicable because they're human things. But Alarma, um, it's a he- it's a heavy album lyrically because. I'm not even going to say Christian music, but groups have never, how many groups make a four part concept album? I mean, right. I know Savior Machine did one and they're a Christian band too. I mean, there's others probably. And I know there's probably a lot of Indian stuff, but a four album concept album. And in the eighties, it's heavy stuff. And I came in and because uh, I Mr. Beaten Stream was my first album, but then I went to Alarma Chronicles and I was in my early well mid 20s and so i've had time years and years to digest that music and like it wasn't until like this past year walls of doubt i mean i liked it but it wasn't didn't hit me like bringing me to tears until like last year because now i'm 42 i got kids i got stuff going on planning for my yeah i got all that stuff and so it hits me differently now and so Sam's still young bless his heart and he has as much time with it and i think as the um trials of life um hits him i think the album's gonna grow on him you know it and and that's not his fault you know it's just we're we're just this part of being human and when you make art it affects you differently when you you know when you're young like i know like albums i've heard when i was 16 years old like automatic for the people where i am how it hit me at 16 and now completely different because it's good art it's gonna grow with you yeah So I don't think it's Sam, you know, he's, we love you, Sam, but, you know, I bet if we do this again 10 years from now, you're like, oh my God, Alarm is the best album ever. <laughs> I mean, it's a possibility. I, um, I refuse oh, okay. to box myself in musically. I, uh, I will always be willing to give anything a first try, a second try, a third try. 
And I will always have some stuff that I like that no one else cannot even fathom why I like it. Um, Two years ago, well, that would probably have been like three for me. Now it's five. I mean, that's just how life works. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just a simple thing. You like some stuff, you don't like some stuff. Some some stuff that you... Um, I, um, I have a friend, Doug DeNaple, who uh, there was something off Beekner that he said when he first heard it, he hated it. There was something, I, I forget which song it was. He goes, but I kept coming back to it. He goes, I kept coming back to that song. And he goes, now I love it. I mean, from hate to love, you know. And it's not, you know, it's not my, it's not my, uh, I'm not trying to, Sam, I'm not trying to evangelize you into ex- accepting, accepting shedding the mortal coil as your personal savior. So, so that's fair. Um, I, pre- don't, I appreciate don't, don't, that. Don't, don't, don't worry. Or, or walls of doubt. I know the wall- story should be the Lord and savior. That should be it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think walls of doubt. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, it's very popular and I'm all, I always, whenever we've played live, always get a request for it. So it's just one of those songs and you either like it or you don't, not everybody, not everybody does. No big deal. It's like, like, the world isn't going to go up in flames. Exactly. So what, any other critiques or, um, attaboys? Ah, no, you guys, you guys have done a great job and I, and I, 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 I love, like I said, I love the honesty of it. And, uh, and I think, I think you're, I think you're, you're, you're hitting a lot of home runs. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on most everything. Okay. I really am. Where you, where you, where you've seen, where you've seen some weakness. I see the same weaknesses. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, uh, 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 very aware of it. You know, I can okay. look back and, and kind of cringe. I'll, I'll cringe. That's why. I, that's why I didn't listen to that for. Like I said, I didn't listen to that first podcast on on the first record. So I, it's it's difficult for me to to, to listen to it at all. Well, it has great well, memories. It's going to be great, great memory. Great memories, but um, but musically, ah, it's a rough one. Not going forth. It's all beautiful from here on. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, I appreciate. I appreciate, and I really appreciate you guys. You're doing a great job. Well, we appreciate what you gave us. Um, any closing thoughts, Sam, to wrap up? No, not at all. Um, once again, Terry, thank you so much for spending a night with us. It's been a blast hearing all the memories. Um, we enjoy just uh, doing this to celebrate art, right? Um, I was actually, I'm going to just end on a thing I found. So I was just making a playlist the other day of random albums, and I happened to come across your um solo greatest hits album glimpses of grace oh yeah and i really love that because back in the day i my very first podcast i did was with my brother and um our 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 slogan was um glimpsing eternity through the lens of art Mm. and so um i really appreciated that that greatest hits album was named that and it really connected with me. So thank you cool. for, you know, just letting us glimpse eternity through the lens of art. I really appreciate it. 
Well, I appreciate that. So and appreciate I have two you guys. things to say before before we let you go. Earlier, you mentioned a comment about how, like, when artists start talking about owning their own publishing and masters and stuff like that um, with um, Maratha music. That just reminded me of like Prince, who's like my favorite artist of all time. Um, yeah. In the early '90s, fighting Warner Brothers for the same thing. So it's just it's very heartening to see that. The secular market and the Christian market have the same demons that they need to deal with when it comes to music. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the same demon. When you're talking about the, the, the trips to Hawaii, I was a pastor too when I was like 26. I was a youth pastor when the people you're talking about. And you're and I'm with you because before that I was a Christian, obviously. And um I went to the different kind con- the conferences i'm in the south you know so we have all types of evangelical things and i heard and i saw the cool youth pass with the frosted tips because that was the early 90s with the Janko <laughs> jeans the old frosted and, tips yeah and the and the chain on the wallet and all that coming out with skateboards and everything trying to be super cool and we're like man dude you're not cool you know like you're what are you listening to right now like we're like we're listening to like tupac and you're listening to what like limp biscuit like whatever you know <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and a lot of the times we just got up and walked away or start talking like you were saying like and so then as it, when i became a youth pastor i was like i'm not doing that no i'm not trying to be lame <laughs> yeah, yeah you, exactly you dealt, you dealt so in the 70s that was happening in the 90s too you know the pulse of the culture <laughs> there you go yeah says it all right there <laughs> so you you so you were in tune <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. That was it. That's all to share. I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. Well, Terry, again, thanks again. Um, we really do appreciate it. Thanks for indulging us um, all this time. And with well, that, I'm honored. I'm honored to be part of it, you guys. And uh, anytime. Next, yes, uh, we have doppelganger. So. That will be up next. And yeah. as always, this has been a Brothers King Media production. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks. Goodbye.